You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Father, we are thankful for your word for us. We pray that we would sit under it in humility and out of thankfulness and reverence for it It is your word. Pray for all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe seated. Well, that was a first. We didn't know what to sing, but that was all right. Uh, I think that's my fault. I think. Uh, but you know what? I was actually thinking as I was like hearing many of you sing behind me, and even I'm singing myself. Like the, we've perhaps um, you. That was a song that was new to you. Uh, but that's a song that many of us have sung like a hundred times, and those words have grooved themselves into our souls. And we've said all along that we want to pick songs that we sing here on Sundays that can be sung a cappella, uh, that can be sung in 50 years or so, and can be sung around a hospital bed. Uh, that's the kind of gravity that we want to be able to remind and preach to ourselves as we sing songs. And I think that was one of them. So I'm glad that at least some of us knew what we were singing. So. Welcome. If you're new joining us tonight, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. You've caught us, as Clint said, at a unique time. Two weeks ago, we finished a many, many month study through the book of Genesis, and then to, or next week, next Sunday, we'll begin uh, a many month study through the gospel according to John. But last week and today, we're taking two weeks to roll out our new church polity, that is, the structure of our church. Um, Last week, we introduced the theology behind elder-led congregationalism, and this week, we want to get a little bit more into the nuts and bolts. Hopefully, if you weren't with us last Sunday, or if you were in Christchurch Kids, you had a chance to listen to the audio of that sermon. If you didn't, and even if you did, let me just give you a two-minute recap of what we did last week so that we're warmed up a little bit before we jump right in. We outlined many of the differences last week. Uh, in the old covenant of God with his people before the coming of Christ, and then to the new covenant, how God operated and interacted with his people since the coming of Christ. Before the Spirit would come and go in and among a few select prophets, priests, or kings, and the way that the people were to know God was to know him through these mediators. But now on this side of the cross, God has indwelt all of his people through the Holy Spirit. We no longer depend on the professional class, super spiritual mediators to do the work on our behalf, but all people 
All people in covenant with God know God and have equal access to him through Christ. There's now no qualitative difference between leaders and people in the new covenant. God has gifted individual Christians by the indwelling of the Spirit to build and to encourage the church. And while the New Testament has plenty, plenty, plenty to say to elders, to the leaders of the church, the primary center of authority seems to lie within its people, within the congregation. Paul routinely writes to churches, which includes their elders, but not just to the eldership. He, he, doesn't write to, he doesn't write a super secret letter to the elders who then they get together in some sort of like secret cabal and like decide which of this is important enough to filter down to the people. Which of this part of the letter uh, can they handle? No, Paul writes to the churches. Jesus rebukes the seven churches in Revelation 1. He rebukes the churches. He doesn't rebuke their leaders or their elders. God has equipped local churches so that they have everything necessary for life and godliness within their congregations. Well, outside voices and outside teachers can be helpful. Actually, no outside help is actually required or necessary. So we said last week, God has given the church a tool. He's given them a tool. There, there are congregational authority. And then he has given the elders to instruct, train, and lead the congregation in using that tool. So we reached a lot of these conclusions based on several implications that we see scattered through the New Testament. But tonight we want to see a place where Jesus explicitly delegates his authority to the church. And as I mentioned last week, these conclusions are coming from an almost two-year study in an effort to structure the government of our church, not necessarily on what is the most efficient or, or what will bring the fewest problems, but on what we have become convinced on how Jesus wants his church ordered. So let's look tonight at what Jesus has to say. So we'll divide our time into two sections tonight. The keys of the kingdom to heaven, or the keys of the kingdom to heaven, and then how does the church use these keys? So the keys of the kingdom of heaven— Admittedly, in this first section, I'm going to say a few things that you might have heard me say. If you were part of our core launch team, we talked about some of these things in our core phase. If you've taken our membership class, we've talked about some of these things, but now we're going to put some congregational meat on these bones. We've already heard Mark read for us tonight an extremely important section in Matthew 18, but before we get to Matthew 18, I want us to turn over to Matthew 16. So the first book of the New Testament, hopefully you're already there. But in Matthew 16, Jesus is going to set a program for the kingdom of God as we know it here on earth. And the thing about the kingdom of God as we know it now is there's a problem with it. Not a problem that God has set forth, but without land and geographic boundaries, without borders, anyone could claim to be a citizen of this kingdom. And Jesus actually predicted that all sorts of imposters would claim citizenship of this kingdom, causing all kinds of ill repute to the name of the king. So one author asks, how would a landless, borderless kingdom like Jesus's mark off its citizens? Who would exercise border control when there are no borders? So Jesus is going to answer that question for us in these two chapters, Matthew 16 and 18. In Matthew 16, Jesus first asks the disciples who they think 
that he is. And then Peter, answering for the disciples, answers that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of God, the living uh, Messiah. And Jesus affirms Peter's answer, and he tells him in verse 18, he says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now the question for this passage is, what is the rock in verse 18? And many have debated this passage and those words for about 2,000 years now. But I am convinced that the rock is Peter, but based on his confession of who Jesus is. In other words, when others would confess the same truth about Jesus, that he is the Messiah, the anointed one of God, Jesus will build his church on that person and on that confession as well. But I don't come to that conclusion based on this text alone. If we're using just this text, just these few verses in Matthew 16, I think the traditional Catholic reading actually makes more sense. That Jesus is speaking to Peter himself. That Jesus would build his church on the rock of Peter. Actually, the word Peter, the name Peter just means rock. So Jesus is like doing this like play on words. I'm going to build my church on you, rock, to Peter. We'll see why we can't just look at this section in chapter 16 by itself in just a moment. But for the time being, look again at verse 19. Jesus says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus delegates his spiritual authority, the authority of heaven, to here at least Peter, to declare who belongs and who doesn't belong in the kingdom with the so-called keys of the kingdom. Whoever Peter says belongs in the kingdom, he should bind them, and not like in a like he should handcuff them, kind of a negative kind of way. But he gets the keys out of his pocket, and he gets to decide to unlock the door and let someone into the kingdom, and then lock the door behind them. They're in. They're in the kingdom. They belong inside. If Peter says someone shouldn't be in the kingdom, he is to loose them, or he is to get out the keys, unlock the door, and release them out of the kingdom. So this is a huge, huge passage of authority. Jesus is delegating his heavenly authority to someone on earth so that there might be a spiritual border patrol for the kingdom of heaven on this borderless kingdom. Jesus addressed the church in chapter 16. He says, I will build my church, which is one of only two times that Jesus says that word church in all of the gospels. But he'll use it again two chapters later in the other passage where he'll again teach on the keys of the kingdom. So flip over to chapter 15, where Mark read for us just a moment again. And let me read this again, verses 15 through 20, and listen for similar language. Listen for similar language that Jesus spoke to Peter in chapter 16. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. 
Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So this is the so-called process of church discipline, which is where this passage most often gets taught and referenced. But the end result is that the church is now given the authority to bind and to loose, to declare and exclude those who have credible professions of faith in the Lord Jesus, like Peter was given in chapter 16. But the same authority that Jesus gave individually to Peter in chapter 16, he now gives to the local assembly. And we're talking about local assemblies here. This is what the word church means, the assembled people. The assemblies here, he's talking about local assemblies, not just the universal church, like all Christians everywhere on earth. We can't tell it to the church if we're not talking about local gatherings. And we see this in action. We'll see in just a moment in 2 Corinthians 5, as Paul gives local churches the authority to bind or loose, to put out individuals. But before we get into some practical implications, practical implications, I want to just think for a moment about what this means, about the massive amount of authority that Jesus has given the church to bind and to loose. The whole where two or more are gathered in my name thing uh, really has nothing to do with making your prayer time more spiritual if you have a friend to come along, right? We've all perhaps prayed this. Uh, we know, God, where two or more are gathered in your name, there you are with us. Well, that's not what this passage is actually about. After all, Jesus has promised to be with us until the end of the age. And we know that God hears our prayers, whether we have a friend with us or not. Rather, rather than making your prayer time more spiritual, Jesus is delegating his authority to the church here. Jesus is reducing to the lowest common denominator and saying that even if a hypothetical church is just two people, or like our friends in North Africa, four. They're living in a city where there are four Christians, and they are the church. Where four of you are gathered in my name, there am I among you. What a local church pronounces, it might as well be as if Jesus is right there with them, giving him their authority to pronounce, to bind, and to loose. The best resource I know of to help think through this comes from actually this book. Jonathan Lehman's excellent little book, Church Membership. It's like last I checked, 11 bucks on Amazon. It would be well worth it to buy this uh, and to ruminate a bit more on this stuff. And perhaps the most helpful picture of what local churches are is Lehman comparing a local church to that of an embassy. He says, what is an embassy? It's an institution that represents one nation inside another nation. It declares its home nation's interest to that of the host nation, and it protects the citizens of the home nation living in the host nation. So Lehman tells a story about when he was a college student, he was studying abroad for a semester in Brussels, and while he was there, he didn't realize uh, before he had left, but while he was there, his passport expired. So he went to the U.S. Embassy in Brussels and had his passport renewed. And he says, the embassy didn't make me a U.S. citizen that afternoon, but it did officially affirm it. Even though I am a U.S. citizen, I don't have the authority to officially declare myself one before the nations. 
Yet the embassy's affirmation gave me the ability to continue living in a foreign city protected by all the rights and benefits of my citizenship. So he says that a local church is a real-life embassy. It is set in the present, this present kingdom, but representing the host or the, the, the real nation that you belong to, the kingdom of heaven, Christ's future kingdom and his coming universal church. So a church member, therefore, is a person who has been officially and publicly recognized as a Christian before the nations. So do you hear what one implication of what Lehman is saying here, and that I think he's right in? That someone who is not a member of a local church should actually not be confident in their membership in the universal church. That's a really weighty thing for me to say, and I totally realize that. But like a person in a foreign country with no embassy to recognize their citizenship, without a local church to bind you, to, to let you in and to declare you in, to turn the keys on you, you actually shouldn't be confident that you actually have the host nation's citizenship. So does this mean that local churches make Christians not at all, any more than an embassy can make someone an American. You either are an American or you are not. You either are a Christian or you are not. But a local church, when it is operating in the way that Jesus and the apostles prescribe, and a local church that is holding fast to sound doctrine, functions just like an embassy does. The embassy affirms your citizenship in your home nation to the host nation. And this is why after our membership class and before moving forward with membership, one of our GC leaders will meet with you just to hear of your profession of faith, how you came to believe in Christ and what he's done since, to hear about your understanding of the gospel, but then of your active faith in it. As a local embassy here, we want to make sure that we are actually affirming actual citizens, those who have been made alive by God's grace, through faith, through the life and death and resurrection of Christ. So here's one of Lehman's fundamental premises for his book and his understanding of membership in the New Testament. He says, Christians don't join churches. They submit to them. The local church is the authority on earth that Jesus has instituted to officially affirm and give shape to my Christian life and to yours. I think he's right. We don't just say, yeah, this is a church that might give me some cool benefits and give me some sense of belonging. No, this is actually, I need a church to pronounce me uh, a Christian to the nations, to, to confirm to me that what I am saying with my mouth is actually lining up with my life. But as we've described last week and saw implications of this week, Jesus has uh, given this authority to local churches. He has not just given this authority to bind and to loose to elders. So now if Matthew 18 is the theology of the keys, as well as everything that we went through last week, how does the church actually use them? How does the church actually turn a key, a key to the kingdom of heaven? How does the church use the keys? Last week, we and, and this week, we made mention of the situation going on in 1 Corinthians 5. So let's take a closer look. Flip over a couple books to your right. 1 Corinthians. Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. 
read for you the first five verses in chapter 5. Listen for similar language and themes that we heard in Matthew 18, here in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. A man is with his stepmother. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is a practical outworking of Matthew 18. We have arrogant, unresponsive, unrepentant sin. We have the presence of Christ when the church is assembled together. And we have a removal from the church. Therefore, in verse 13, Paul says, purge the evil person from among you. Now, in the context of the letter, this is coming as a rebuke from Paul to the church. He's basically saying here, do it already, church. What are you waiting for? Remove this guy from membership in your church. You don't need me there to make decisions for you. The the, the presence of Christ, his authority is already with you, so make a decision and do what you should have done already. But perhaps... How the church is to decide whether or not to move toward the final stage of church discipline is not altogether clear from this passage. So flip over one more book to 2 Corinthians. Again to the church in Corinth. And in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul is talking about another supposed brother in Corinth, who is leading the church away from the gospel. But in verses 5 through 7, Paul commends the church for the decision that they have already made concerning this man. Perhaps they learned their lesson in his first letter, that they have the authority of Christ and they can make a decision. So now they've learned their lesson. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes in verse 5, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. First of all, verse 7, like verse 5 in 1 Corinthians 5, shows that disassociation or excommunication from the church isn't a punitive act. It's not, we got really mad at this person, and so we just need to publicly humiliate him. That's not what church discipline means, and it doesn't mean that we shun and stop talking to someone. After all, just thinking about the language of Matthew 18, of treating that person like a Gentile or a tax collector, how does Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? With love, with mercy, with compassion and grace and evangelism. So the punishment referred to in 2 Corinthians 2.6 which I think can't be anything but excommunication from the church, is actually a means by which this man might come to repentance, might come to an understanding by the clear and yet comforting care of the church. 
But all of that's not the most interesting part of this passage. Perhaps you heard the one word that is the most fascinating, I think, here, and that is majority. Evidently, not all of the Corinthian church was in unanimous agreement that they should move forward in removing this man. But the fact that there was a majority in agreement was good enough for Paul. And how in the world would Paul have come to understand that there was a majority agreement? Well, I think we can assume that someone counted. So in putting all of these pieces together, we've determined that to local churches who are holding fast to the gospel, Jesus has first delegated his authority to affirm who belongs to the kingdom and who does not. This is not a process to be taken lightly, unseriously, or impatiently, but the way to ascertain the majority voice of the congregation is by taking a vote. And again, this is not just because we're Americans and that's what we like to do, but because that's what we've been persuaded that we see in the text. Part of our leadership to the church in these areas, in membership and in discipline, is that we hope to have always a unanimous vote. We actually won't be voting on new members tomorrow night at our member meeting because we didn't want to spring this all on you with like 24 hours uh, heads up, but here's how our next member meeting later in the fall is going to go. About three or four weeks before the member meeting, we'll send the names of the new member candidates out to the current members. And in this email, we'll ask uh, for you to reply to just Clint and me if, if you have any serious concerns with the profession of faith of any of these candidates. Not to gossip about an area of sin in their life. Hey, I saw this person uh, do this and she made a really terrible batch of cookies that one time or something, right? Uh, but because every single one of us are sinners saved by grace. We can all point to areas of sin in our own lives, right? But in in an area of serious and unrepentant sin that you might be uh, concerned that Clint or I or the other elders might not know about, that would seemingly suggest that this person's life doesn't align with their verbal confession of faith, we'd ask for some feedback. And we expect that most classes will never hear anything from any of you. But in the case that we do, we'll have a few, few ways forward. If we're already aware of the concern that's been brought to us by the concerned member, uh, we would communicate to that concerned member that we've already, we're, we're, we're aware of this, thanks for the heads up, but we've already talked to the member candidate. Uh, here's why we're convinced that this person is also aware of that, in agreement with God about their sin, and is moving towards Christ and out of that area of sin. And then we'd encourage the concerned member to agree with us that this person is moving in repentance and then to vote in the affirmative for that person's membership. So sinlessness is not a qualification for membership, but repentance is. If we were unaware of that issue, then we'd go to that member candidate to ask for their perspective. Hey, this person brought forth this concern. This sounds serious. Uh, are we missing anything here? Perhaps fill in the gaps for us. And then like, oh yeah, this is why they know of this, but here's what's happening, uh, which we could then report back to the concerned member. But if in our follow-up discussion with the candidate, he or she seemingly is unrepentant and 
hardened in their sin, or to use the Matthew 18 language, he doesn't listen to concerned Christians, then we'd communicate that we're concerned enough about this person, not that this person isn't perfect, but doesn't seem to have been born of the Spirit in an attitude and posture of repentance, that we simply wouldn't bring their name forward for a vote. But in the spirit of Matthew 18 and 2 Corinthians 2, still move toward this person in love, in compassion, in evangelism. Perhaps say, let's, let's continue to meet over the next uh, three or four or 12 months and perhaps go through the membership class again or talk about these things over the next year or two. Let's trust in Christ together in this area. And then at the member meeting, we'd remind the congregation that they have had ample time to communicate concerns to us. And then the GC leader who conducted that member interview would give a 20 or 30 second recap of this this person's, this candidate's conversion and profession of faith. And then Clint or I would take back the mic and then we'd say to the congregation, uh, the elders are happy to recommend John Smith for membership. Any questions about John? Nope then all in favor of accepting John into membership say aye. Aye. All opposed, nay. So ordered. Now admittedly, the Roberts rules of order are not in the New Testament. (laughs) Uh, But we found that the order and clarity that moving this way provides is actually a good model for that. Order and clarity. Because of the month out heads up, Lord willing, no one will ever be caught off guard by some name that they just heard. Wait, what? You want to accept John into membership? He is totally physically abusive to his family. Nay! And then we're like, oh shoot, why did that person just vote nay? But Lord willing, we will have a unanimous vote every time. It is the authoritative voice of the congregation that holds the keys here in binding members. And in the same way that the GC leaders and the elders gave just kind of a summary of the person's profession of faith and kind of just asked the congregation to just trust us, the same would be true if, God forbid, we ever got to the final stage of church discipline. The broad and pertinent details would be shared with the congregation. Look, this breaks our heart, but Sally has not listened to the pleas of her husband, of her elders, of her friends, and she is leaving the marriage for another man. But the play-by-play of the past several months, the gory details would not be necessary to be shared. We would share of our concern uh, for this member at one meeting and urge the congregation to pray for Sally. If perhaps you were already, uh, in an intimate way, already uh, up close to the situation, to meet with Sally, to plead for her to repent But then if there's no movement at the next member meeting, and since the majority voice of the congregation is needed to authoritatively turn the keys, we would vote on that heartbreaking name as well. And then pray and pursue Sally like crazy. And by the way, if you have more questions about church discipline and why it actually isn't a scary thing, but is, should be and should come to you as a comfort for your soul, uh, I'd encourage you towards October's membership class. We'll talk more about it uh, there. But at this point, here's what we're ready to conclude. That Jesus has delegated his authority, not just to elders, but to the church, to proclaim and protect the who 
and the what of the gospel. We've already seen that he's given his authority to proclaim the who of the gospel, the membership of a local church, like the front door in on membership and the back door out on discipline. But we see in the New Testament that Jesus has also entrusted the church to protect the what of the gospel, the doctrine of the gospel. Throughout the book of Acts, we see the corporate nature of decision-making all throughout. For instance, and this is just one instance, in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas are welcomed by the church, the apostles, and the elders. Not just the apostles and the elders are receiving and welcoming these men, but the church is welcoming and receiving them. And then after reaching some theological conclusions, uh, we read, it seemed good to the apostles, to the elders, with the whole church to send some men along with Paul and Barnabas. We also saw last week that Paul authorized the Galatian churches, that if someone comes in preaching a different gospel, contrary to Christ crucified, that the church ought to curse him. As well as Jesus rebuking the seven churches in Revelation 1, to once again believe and behave rightly. Elders are not in view in Galatians 1 and in Revelation 1. The church, which is made up of individual kingdom priests who know God, who ought to know better to protect the gospel, are the ones given this authority. So if, for example, Clint and I decided that we ever wanted to amend our statement of faith, our covenant of fellowship, we wanted to take something out or add something to it. The what of the gospel. What it means to believe the gospel in the context of this local church, we'd vote on that as well. One reason, among others, we decided to start this whole study in church polity almost two years ago at Desert Springs is because we wanted to add a paragraph to our statement of faith there at Desert Springs. We wanted to make explicit what, in our local church, what the universal church had assumed about marriage and sexuality and gender. But we felt really, really uneasy about just adding something. We just wanted to write it and then add it. Uh, we didn't have to let the congregation know, according to our bylaws and our polity. We could have just done it. But we felt really uneasy because this new statement was not the statement that the present members had agreed to when they became members. So we did as best we could to let them know what we were doing. We announced it publicly for weeks and weeks and weeks in a row. We put it on the front page of the website. We uh, wrote a blog post about what and why we were doing and shared it on social media like crazy. We invited congregational feedback and concerns, but the point is, is that we didn't have to do any of that. We could have done or changed anything we wanted. The congregation would have had zero recourse. And that's why we felt really, really uneasy about it. So we were like, we should study whether we should be able to do this or not. Let me give you a, a negative and a positive example of this in action as well. About the same time, about two years ago, the elders of a Presbyterian church in San Francisco of the PCA, the Reformed and Conservative, a Reformed and Conservative Presbytery, the Presbyterian Church of America, decided that they, as a church, wanted to begin uh, affirming and performing same-sex weddings in their church, which you can't do in the PCA. So they left the PCA, and they aligned with the PCUSA, the 
the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America, and there was nothing that their members could do to protect the doctrine of their church. The elders changed the theology of 2,000 years of Christian tradition and understanding of marriage because their elder rule polity uh, allowed them to, and the only recourse for their members was to simply leave the church. They had to abandon their church because it had changed so drastically. Compare that with my sister's church in Dallas-Fort Worth. She and my brother-in-law are members of a church with the kind of elder-led congregationalism that we've been describing here. And in fact, I had coffee with their pastor in July of 2015, both to talk about church planting and to talk about elder-led congregationalism because I had lots and lots of questions and the idea of voting on things just gave me the willies. So I wanted to talk to him and ask him about what in the world and how does this work. Well, about a year ago, the same pastor that I had had coffee with two years ago and one of the lay elders of their church decided that after reading and studying for many years, they had become uh, theologically convinced that they were that they were, wanted to begin baptizing infants, that they had become theologically Presbyterian in their understanding of the covenants. They hadn't left the gospel, right? There are many great brothers and sisters who would agree with them on bad, baptism and their reading of the covenants, including great sister churches here in town, City Presbyterian and Mosaic, perhaps Tim Keller and Kevin DeYoung and not to mention Martin Luther and John Calvin. So they're in good company, right, of their understanding of baptism. But because the congregation had the authority to guard the what of the gospel, this pastor had to call a member meeting. And he did. And he shared of his theological transition, and he gave the congregation two ways forward. The first option was that he could begin looking for a job elsewhere. And that he would do everything in his power to help this church find his replacement. The second option, though, was as a church, we could commit over the next six months to study this uh, topic exhaustively. And then let's just see what happens on the other end of this six months. We'll just see. Well, to the credit of that incredible congregation, but to their devastating heartbreak because of their immense immense love for their pastor. They said, we believe that the scriptures are clear. We're convictionally uh, persuaded that we should only baptize those after their conversion and profession of faith. That the people of God are those who are saved by faith and not just those who are born into the family of God. They said, we are Baptists. I don't know if they said that or not, but <laughs> implicitly that's what they said. And he said, again, I don't have his words, but implicitly he said, this hurts, but I respect and submit to the decision of the congregation because of the polity of our church. The church was able to keep itself. The church was able to protect the what of the gospel as they believed it. 
Now, I hesitated to share these examples with you because we can all think of worst-case hypothetical scenarios for any kind of polity, right? There's good examples of every kind of polity, and there's really bad examples of every kind of polity. And as I said from the beginning of last week, we do not want to structure our church based on what is most likely to keep us out of the most trouble, right? We don't want to keep ourselves from the worst case because there's a worst case in every kind of polity. We don't want to structure our church based on what is most efficient and easy. Making these kinds of changes is actually going to make things harder and more cumbersome. The status quo is way easier and way more efficient. But we are convinced by the, the scriptures that this is the way that Jesus has ordered his church. And we want to submit to that. And we want to honor him in the way that he's ordered his church. So members, if you have more questions about this, I'd invite you to bring those tomorrow night here, 6.30. We'll devote probably half of our time to just Q&A on this. And answer hopefully your questions then. If you're not a member and have any questions, feel free to come and ask me and Clint after the service. Perhaps meet with us this week or the next, and we'd love to talk through these things uh, and perhaps answer your questions. Clint and I, along with Ryan and Kyle, our elder candidates who were, by the way, have been with us in this study for the last, the last two years. They began joining us for these studies with the elders at Desert Springs a long time ago. Uh, we couldn't be more excited to share the keys with you. To not just hold them for ourselves. The, that Jesus has given these keys to all of us. So we're looking forward to leading you in understanding when and how to turn them, to use them, to use the job and the delegated authority that Jesus has given to you, to us, for the sake of our people, for the sake of our witness as a church to the city and for the sake of the gospel and Christ our King. We're excited to share this and to lead you in this for the sake of all these things. So let's ask for his help. Our great God, we are thankful that you have revealed yourself to humanity. We're thankful for those of us who are trusting in the cross of Christ as our only hope for salvation that you have not only revealed yourself generally to the world, but you have revealed yourself specifically to us through your word, through your son Jesus, and by the power of your spirit. Father, we are thankful that you have chosen in your great goodness and wisdom to, in the new covenant, to fill every believer with your spirit to make us all individually and then as corporately built up on top of each other, the temple of God. So, Father, we pray for wisdom. Thankful for many, many people over the past couple of years to help us understand your word clearly in this. Father, we pray for unity for our church, and we pray that a year from now and 50, or if it be your will, 100 or 200 years from now, Christ Church in Albuquerque might be a strong and well-ordered church for the sake of the gospel, that the gospel might be held on high and positioned in such a way, even by something as plain and boring as our polity, that the city and the nations would see you as beautiful, compelling, and persuasively saving. For the sake of Christ, our King, 
Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.